Jessica Lewis McFay is the Director of Tradecraft and Innovation at the Institute for the Study of War. From 2012 to 2015, she was the ISW's Director of Research, where she conceptualized and managed all of ISW's research for both regional and functional portfolios. She joined ISW after eight years of service on active duty as an intelligence officer in the United States Army. Her military career includes 34 months deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, where she provided intel support to tactical, operational, and theater commands. She has twice been awarded the Bronze Star Medal for her impact upon operations. She is the author of the ISIS defense in Iraq and Syria, Countering an Adaptive Energy Enemy, The Islamic State of Iraq Returns to Diyala, and Al-Qaeda in Iraq Resurgent, Parts 1 and 2. Additionally, Ms. McFate is the co-author of A Strategy to Defeat the Islamic State. She has also authored several of ISW's Iraq updates, including Al-Qaeda in Iraq's Breaking the Walls. Campaign achieves its objective at Abu Ghraib and the ISIS battle plan for Baghdad. Ms. McFate's work has appeared in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, and she has made frequent appearances on both television and radio programs, including Fox News, CNN, Al Jazeera, American BBC TV, TV and Radio, Voice of America TV and Radio, National Public Radio, and Wall Street Journal Live. In addition, she has been cited as a source for numerous articles in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, the Daily Beast, Yahoo News, McClatchy News, and other publications. She holds a BS in Strategic and International History and International Relations from West Point and an MA in Strategic Intelligence from American Military University. Let me just say a word as well about the wonderful work of the Institute for the Study of War located in Washington, D.C., and particularly for Jessica's work in relation uh, to ISW. In my judgment, uh, other than hopefully the intelligence community within the United States government, uh, which one cannot be entirely sure as to uh, their knowledge, I would suggest that there is no one that has been on top of uh, the whole ISIL development and al-Nusra and al-Qaeda uh, in Iraq and Syria as has ISW generally and particularly Jessica McFate. Uh, you are in for an extraordinary presentation and understanding of one of the most difficult security challenges uh, that our country and virtually uh, uh, the whole of uh, democratic nations face today. Jessica, thank you so much. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I guess I'm truly thrilled to be back. Uh, I was here last year, and uh, some things have changed in this world and some things have not. Uh, but to uh, lay the scene for what I hope will be a very exciting group discussion over the course of uh, the next hour, uh, I'd ask, uh, please do stop me if you have questions. Uh, I'm planning to brief to give you inspiration for comments, um, but please do stop me if you would like to stop on any particular point. Um, 
I used to be the research director. Uh, one of the topics that I won't be briefing directly that I would very much welcome uh, in terms of your questions. Um, I've changed to a new role for the director of tradecraft and innovations at my institute for some of the reasons uh, that you graciously outlined. Um, I had been a career intelligence officer inside the U.S. Army. I love intelligence, and this think tank where I'm working now, the Institute for the Study of War, is actually performing some of the best intelligence I've ever seen from publicly available information in a, an unclassified space without affiliation with the U.S. government. And I am now studying why it is that our intelligence is so effective. So I will be giving you a brief today on ISIS on its status now, where I think it's headed, and what that means, particularly for U.S. national security, but also for human security broadly. Um, and I hope that you will detect that there are elements of our tradecraft and elements of how it is that we're performing intelligence at ISW that, if it piques your interest, we can also describe. So I started studying ISIS when it was a very sleepy AQI portfolio at ISW, AQI being al-Qaeda in Iraq in the 2012-2013 timeframe. I had been deployed in Iraq in the 2007-2008 timeframe uh, when AQI was at that point an enemy on the run from a coalition uh, from U.S. forces. Uh, it was a degraded insurgency uh, that we ended up saying had been defeated at the Battle of Mosul in 2008. Mosul is what caught all of our attention in June 2014 uh, I don't know if I have a laser on this pointer, but if I do, I will point it out. It's a city right up here in northern Iraq, uh, the second largest city in Iraq. Uh, the short of it is that that enemy didn't die in 2008, after all. Um, AQI hibernated, for lack of a better word, uh, and incubated, and started to rear its head again pretty much as soon as the majority of U.S. forces left Iraq in December 2011 by... The following June, the beginning of Ramadan, uh, AQI, still not ISIS yet, they were still calling themselves the Islamic State of Iraq, uh, began to regenerate some of the attack patterns that AQI had been delivering uh, before the surge. Uh, so back in the 2006 timeframe, one of the signature attack styles is something called a VBID, a vehicle-borne IED. This is not a car bomb. It's a very sophisticated kind of bomb that creates an incredible amount of destructive power that blows out from a vehicle. It's not a Russian mob assassination tactic to kill the people inside. This is the kind of thing that can blow up an entire market. Um, to deliver a wave of those, six or more in a single day, in order to maximize firepower. Uh, that was an old AQI tactic that started coming back. This organization didn't just reconstitute its attack capability. Uh, it reconstituted its command and control, uh, not just through the forces who remained at large after 2008, but also through prison breaks. Abu Ghraib caught some people's attention. Uh, about a year later, in um, June 2013, AQI broke a bunch of people out of the Abu Ghraib prison, something like 500 people. Uh, most of whom probably went directly back into that organization's ranks, and most of whom uh, were probably also in some level of leadership uh, to have been priority targets. Something that we also don't recognize as readily is that there was a very significant prison break the year before, of all places, in Tikrit. Tikrit was a city that ISIS had controlled last year that ISF, Iraqi Security Forces, have taken back. Um, you can see the 
milestones in AQI's regeneration and constitution into an expanded Islamic state of Iraq and al-Sham iterate over the course of prison breaks. Prison breaks is still something that ISIS loves to do. So does Jabhat al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria that has been mentioned. I'd like to come back on prison breaks throughout this presentation. The main point that I want to hit with this history is that this organization has been around for a long time. ISIS is AQI for all intents and purposes in my view. Today it is a very popular narrative and I do agree with it in, to some degree that ISIS is degraded now. They've lost 40% of their territory. Uh, by the way, most of their territory is desert so when the United States government says that, they're talking about the cities that ISIS controls. ISIS had this many cities, they've lost this many of them, ergo a 40% <coughs> estimate. Uh, this degraded ISIS compared to ISIS last year is 10 times more powerful than AQI in 2008. And that enemy was hard to kill. In fact, we didn't kill it. It came back in three years. Okay, so the ISIS defeat strategy, in my view, for me, is measured against a bar of what it would take even to bring AQI back down to that level it being an assumption whether or not that level is sufficient. That is potentially a viable plan if some of the conditions that allowed AQI to come back the way that it did weren't there. Some of those conditions, the ones that are not, that are exogenous to AQI, are what the Maliki government did in terms of arraying security forces in order to create an authoritarian regime. I will put it that simply. Uh, Mosul's security was not what it should have been because of leadership moves that the uh, Prime Minister of Iraq made in order to centralize control within a cadre that was loyal to him. Uh, the leaders of the Nineveh uh, divisions flew away the day that ISIS took Mosul and left their troops without leaders. Okay, that's not the kind of ISF that we built. We did rebuild that military, and that was not characteristic of the force or the leadership that we left. Uh, the force had been degraded over the same time period that AQI became resurgent. That's what was happening in Iraq. Most of us are tracking the total quagmire that Syria has become. It was a quagmire in 2012 and 2013 as well. And that most certainly did facilitate ISIS's rise. Okay, these are easy conclusions to draw. Why am I mentioning them in 2016? Well. One metric for defeating ISIS can be that we remove them from all of their cities. Mosul is a big target. Raqqa is a big target. Those are ISIS's de facto capitals inside of the train that is encompassed on this map. That's feasible. Mosul's going to be hard, but it's feasible. We are building <coughs> force capacity right now. We are on the cutting edge. By we, I mean a U.S.-led coalition that is designed to help capable ground partners do exactly that to take the cities back. Uh, my concern is that we are carrying artifacts forward from the 2006 to 2008 time frame about what's going to happen after we do that. Case in point, there's a battle right now in Fallujah, of all places. Battles in 2004 and 2006 in Fallujah, which is about 60 kilometers west of Baghdad. Pretty brutal. Fallujah is an extremely hard target. The ISF may retake Fallujah here in the next few days. That would be wonderful. Okay, ISIS has held that city since January 2014. It's been two and a half years. It's the first city they took over in Iraq. Sometimes we forget that because that was six months before Mosul. 
It's a very small city. You can fit like 10 Fallujahs inside of Mosul. Okay? It's also the city that has a population with the most virulent strand of anti-government sentiment and that that has been the case for the last 10 years of our experience. So what happens the day after Fallujah is retaken? It's a question that is a microcosm of the greater question for the ISIS defeat strategy, in my view. Let's say that the ISF, the Iraqi Security Forces, with our help, uh, retake the city center of Fallujah. In a material sense, we're talking about the government, this, the, the mayoral complex, about security checkpoints, militarily retaking control of a city that has been destroyed for several years. Half the population is evacuated already. Half the population is still there. Uh, let's assume they are under military control by the Iraqi state uh, within the next few days. Uh, there is a popular mobilization that is led by Iranian-backed Shia militias that is trying to do the same thing north of Fallujah right now. Uh, they are actually the ones who have physical control of the territory that the ISF has designated as the safe corridor for civilians to evacuate. Uh, they are the ones who are most likely and have the greatest and most consistent record of sectarian violence. So to me, there is still very much a concoction of all of the same circumstances that preceded all of the good work uh, that we have done in Iraq over the last few years that could unravel very quickly. Uh, let me spell that out. The AQI defeat mission originally got very hard because there was a sectarian civil war that grew out of one of AQI's attacks against a uh, very significant Shia shrine in Samara. All of those conditions are still actually vulnerabilities. It is amazing to me that Iraq hasn't experienced a sectarian civil war over the course of the last couple years. Uh, some people go one way and think that that's because all the Sunnis who would wish to be a part of one have regenerated an insurgent feeling by joining ISIS. Some feel that ISIS prepared the battlefield before it retook all these cities the last two years by assassinating the leaders of the Sahwa, the tribal leaders who would compete with them, and that there is not a force that can remobilize effectively uh, in order to produce a Sunni insurgency or a Shia popular resistance to one. Uh, I tend to be more in that camp. Uh, the popular mobilization, by the way, is an outgrowth, a good one, uh, to augment the Iraqi security forces with a civilian force that is trained. It's a great idea. There are Sunnis in it. Uh, the majority of the popular mobilization commands are actually led by Iranian-backed Shia militias and leaders who have been Iranian proxies for a very long time. Uh, so this is really a deep concern. And Iraq is supposed to be the easy part of this map. Okay. ISIS very likely doesn't have the capacities that it had when I was here speaking to you last year. Last year, I was talking about the fact that ISIS, as a maneuver force, as a terrorist army, could defend <coughs> cities, could still maneuver to retake new ones, that it had the ability to move across terrain in a way that would be faster and more forceful than the competing militaries on the ground. Friends inside the United States military are telling me that they no longer have that capacity. This next slide will illustrate what had been the case. These little red arrows are showing the way in which ISIS, over the course of the last two years, consolidated terrain in order to control all the cities up and down the Tigris and Euphrates River Valleys that it had. The current assessment is that ISIS can't do that kind of maneuver warfare anymore, that its army capacity is degraded, that it's looking more like 
a terrorist group on the run, something sort of like pre-2008, that would be great. Here's the problem. There's no state army that's competing with it right now. I have mentioned the Iraqi security forces. That sounds like it should be a state army. Uh, it is still severely degraded. It still can't control all the terrain that it seizes. Okay. The hold force in Tikrit, which is the capital that is between Mosul and Baghdad, that uh, the ISF retook with our help uh, last year, Shia militias and federal police are controlling that city. The force that is controlling Ramadi, which is just west of Fallujah on the Euphrates, that's not, an, that's not an army force. That is a police force, too. These are cities, in my view, that even a, a degraded ISIS can retake. So there is a contest that I think we need to keep in mind now, and I'll broaden this out to uh, policy-level questions in a moment, about what is going to come after ISIS inside of Iraq and Syria. I think if we're assuming that there's going to be a hold force and we're assuming that there is going to be stability operations, uh, we're wrong. I don't hear those conversations happening in D.C. at all. I don't think we want to have those conversations because the stability operations part of our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were really expensive and really long, and there's a big gulf between having special forces and close air support authorities on that level and actually conducting reconstruction, for example. By the way, the cities that are cleared, that ISIS is cleared from, are destroyed when we go back in. Mostly by ISIS. I'll come back to the Russians in Syria in a moment, but the destruction of cities is something that I think we really need to take into account. These are not forts that ISIS is vacating that are being retaken in which populations can come back in immediately. These are cities that have been in a wartime environment that are being destroyed with populations that have been displaced for a very long time. So we're talking about a, uh, a real vacuum of order here that does not have a mitigation strategy that is robust enough to scale uh, and to outpace the destruction of ISIS that we are trying to achieve. So if ISIS was up here, and now it's down here, but everybody with whom ISIS is competing inside of Iraq and Syria is way below that, ISIS is still winning on the ground. And that's something I think should really scare us. So let's talk about Syria for a moment. Syria has not gotten better over the course of the last year. Wasn't doing too well last year either. Uh, you still have uh, morselized control by the state, by Kurds, by uh, primarily Sunni members of opposition groups that are not all on the same page. The main delta in Syria uh, has been that the Kurds have gotten a lot stronger. Uh, they are the force that we prefer to work with on the ground in Syria. Uh, problem is that that produces a bit of an ethnic torque on the majority of the Sunni Arab opposition in Syria. Uh, they don't like Kurds. So case in point, there was a really, really great operation. Uh, we supported it, led by Kurds. To, oops, sorry, laser to move down from this primarily Kurdish area in Syria to Shadadi, which was a very important city, that small one that ISIS controlled, that helped it to connect um, a line of communications between Raqqa and Mosul, its two largest cities. ISIS doesn't control that town anymore. This is very important. Hit a button, and I will get it back. Good. 
The population left Shadadi and went into ISIS territory farther south when the Kurds moved in to liberate it. The Sunni Arab population in that town preferred ISIS to the Kurds who were liberating the city. So it's one of the reasons why the operation to retake Raqqa is frankly taking a lot of time to prepare because a force could theoretically be ready to retake that city now. A primarily Kurdish force may be ready to retake it. Yes? Are the Kurds primarily sticking to the areas they've held more northern, or are they more wandering where the fight is? Well, that's a great question. I think the, the argument that the United States is making to the Kurds whom we are supporting is that they should stay within primarily Kurdish areas, but be part of what is essentially a joint force to clear ISIS, but then go back from whence they came. Uh, some people think that the Kurds with whom we're working are all about doing exactly that. Some people think that that's what they're telling us. And I think for the purposes of trying to develop good plans, we should assume worst case. So I'm concerned about it. So are the Sunni opposition <coughs> groups who are also supposed to be a part of that operation. So are the Sunni tribes we are trying to sponsor so that they will participate as a Sunni face on a primarily Kurdish operation. But that force has theoretically been capable to go for a while and they haven't gone yet, I think, for exactly this reason. So there is absolutely an ethnic concern, not just a sectarian concern, not just a civil war between the opposition and the Assad regime in Syria. There is absolutely a percolating concern in northern Syria about what this, what, who's going to control what at the end of the day. Yes? And to go with that, ma'am, can you briefly just describe on a map kind of areas that ISIS still holds versus where the Kurdish lines were all Absolutely. Let me go back to the previous slide. Uh, this is a current map uh, as of the end of April about what ISIS currently controls. The black areas are control zones. The pink areas are support zones. Uh, pink areas meaning where ISIS still has the ability to operate, still has sanctuary. The red is where they have uh, always attacked. So if we talk about the terrain here that pertains to the Kurdish question, this green zone is the Iraqi Kurdish region. This area, this area, and that area are primarily Kurdish in northern Syria. So it gets a little tricky when we talk about Raqqa, which is ISIS controlled still, because this is one of the primarily Kurdish pockets. So should that force, primarily Kurdish, Kurdish push down and take Raqqa from the north? Should the primarily Sunni Arab contingents push at Raqqa from the west? Ideally, it would be both challenges that the Sunni opposition is still primarily oriented on a fight with the Assad regime, so they're not really keen on focusing on ISIS at this time. Uh, that's actually something that affects a, a number of our coalition partners in the region. So there is a, a movement among some Syrian Kurds to establish an independent Kurdish region that is contiguous along the northern border of Syria so that that zone that separates Syria from Turkey would be a, an independent Kurdish region. There is also talk right now of an independent Kurdish region uh, among Iraqi Kurds that may be leverage over Baghdad as opposed to a genuine uh, quest for independence, uh, but conditions in Baghdad are such that I think we should consider that those movements may actually progress the worst 
these capital cities do, the worse the states do as cohesive entities, the more that argument is going to be made. Uh, and it's a real tension, it's a real torque on the kinds of operations that we want to conduct now in the sense that we want to achieve gains on the ground against ISIS, that we want to do it with proxy forces. But the proxy forces we're working with don't all like each other. <laughs> so particularly when it comes to Peshmerga operations, Kurdish forces that are going to try to position, uh, who currently are positioned uh, along a, a greater Mosul border <coughs> of ISIS to try to hold that line and or push further, further from it, we have decisions about whether or not we want to try to encourage that force to go take Mosul because of the potential uh, ethnic, local, and regional consequence, consequences uh, on this point. And I would love to take your question. Uh, I think Turkey would go nuts if a Kurdish force were to try to retake Mosul. So, yes? You mentioned uh, some Sunni, Sunni resistance forces in the north. Uh, to what extent do you think they were degraded by the Russian intervention? Are they still effective, or were they significantly degraded by Russia? That's a good question. Uh, my understanding of the forces whom we are specifically training to try to retake terrain from ISIS in Syria now um, are not in the locations that Russia is targeting. But the broader opposition is. So a big point about Russia, one of the things that I like about us compared to Russia uh, they bomb everything and they don't care about collateral damage. Uh, and everybody's a terrorist. So the real vulnerability to the way that Russia is targeting actually, in my view, doesn't even have to do with ISIS. It has to do with al-Qaeda in Syria. And by the way, the al-Qaeda image for what governance should be like in Iraq and Syria ultimately is also a united version of Sham. Okay. So... ISIS built this Iraq and al-Sham image that wasn't original. That's the way that al-Qaeda has viewed it. So its burgeoning affiliate in Syria, in our view, is headed back over to Iraq. We could end up degrading ISIS to just enough of a degree that we have empowered al-Qaeda at scale. And this is a real question, a real concern right now. So to the point about Russia, uh, Russia is radicalizing the still resistant elements of opposition in Syria that are not cool with al-Qaeda. That population is getting very, very small now. Uh, they have been radicalized over the long haul of, engage, of engaging in a war with Assad because Assad targeted that way too. Uh, Iran helped them do it. Uh, but now Russian air is also targeting that way. Uh, Palmyra, for example, this beautiful Roman city in central Syria ISIS used to control it. They don't control it anymore, and that's great. The Assad regime was a ground force, and the Russians were the air force. Um, Russia destroyed 50% of that city in the over the course of actually providing air support to that operation. So Palmyra is destroyed because of the Russians. ISIS obviously destroyed some pretty important things in Palmyra beforehand. So to your question, I don't see Russia as directly degrading the Sunni members of the ground force we're trying to build to retake terrain from ISIS. I see them degrading the one that is fighting Assad, which is why they're doing it. The effect is 10 points to Al-Qaeda, but somewhat, in my view, of a net neutral on ISIS. But that's still actually significant to mention when we talk about trying to engage Russia as an anti-ISIS actor. I personally think that's fluff. 
I think that the Russians are interested in taking over a leadership position of a global coalition against ISIS so that we, the United States, are not the ones leading it. Russia's actions in Syria are about a host of other things besides ISIS. Russia is interested in having strategic basing on the Mediterranean, which it has now. Uh, Russia is interested in destroying the EU and is interested in balancing against, at a minimum, NATO. Russia is interested in challenging us for global presence, particularly in the Middle East. So ISIS is a lever for Russia. Interestingly, I do think they have a genuine terrorist concern in, inside of their territory. Uh, it's a little ISIS. It's a lot al-Qaeda. Uh, and I think that they know that. But even in terms of their domestic politics, uh, the role that terrorism plays in Russia is a lever for other objectives. I want to come back to this image of leverage, though, because I think that is someplace we need to go in this briefing. I'm going to skip this slide. We'll talk about how ISIS is fighting now as our conversation takes us there. Uh, ISIS is a global threat. ISIS is active on numerous fronts. Um, it is not the only threat uh, that we need to face. Uh, we in this context meaning the United States, but I definitely mean our, um, our partners and our allies as well. Uh, there is a very dangerous intersection of threats right now uh, going on in the Middle East, uh, particularly the way that Russia is handling uh, its opportunities in direct contest with the vulnerabilities that we are facing. Um, I think we are vulnerable the way that we're operating right now. Um, I think official remarks were made yesterday to the tune that our military operations inside Iraq and Syria are not degrading the terrorist threat to the homeland. We are also vulnerable to ISIS coming right back a year from now to what it had been last year, uh, as you've seen AQI do over the course of several years. That, that kind of a strategic uh, lack of victory is a real opportunity for uh, a contest that Russia is seizing to engage in. So I'm concerned about Russia. We'll come back to the intersection in a moment. Let me actually talk about this map. I think by focusing on Iraq and Syria, we are missing that ISIS is actually engaging in a contest for uh, leadership of the broader Muslim world. We spend a lot of time on my team talking about what ISIS means by that. Which map should we use? Is this map that looks at states that have majority Muslim populations even sufficient to describe it? Uh, probably not, but let's use it as a visual for a moment. Uh, ISIS is actively engaged, not just in putting pins all over the place inside the Muslim world so that it can say that it has presence broadly, uh, but it's also actually competing for power with the regional power centers. ISIS has a deliberate campaign to weaken Turkey. It has a deliberate campaign to weaken Saudi Arabia. The majority of its campaign to weaken Iran is engaged inside of Iraq and Syria and Yemen, where Iran is actively deployed. It's also a contest for control ultimately of Iraq and Syria. Part of that what happens in Iraq and Syria next question to me is are we going to decide that we'd rather have Iran in control of those states ultimately than Al-Qaeda or ISIS? I know that's a far-reaching question, but we obviously don't want Al-Qaeda to take it. Arguments like containment tend to uh, insert themselves as answers to this question. Maybe we can just keep it inside of that black zone. By the way, that black zone includes Lebanon and Jordan and Israel. So 
Sean broadly is vulnerable right now, that we don't talk about Jordanian security much, that we don't talk about Iraqs and Lebanon much. This is actually a scaling threat. These states have not done better over the course of the last few years. They are becoming more vulnerable. I think if we continue to assume that containment is an option, that there will be states that resurrect based on current conditions inside of Iraq and Syria, or that breaking them up in some way is going to produce better conditions, uh, we're really not thinking about where those trajectories are ultimately headed. Um, I see disorder spreading out of Iraq and Syria. I see the states that are visualized in brown on this map as having compounding challenges that are on exponential curves over the next few years. I see our policies as largely dependent upon the status quo in that regard, and I think we are making some assumptions that are going to prove themselves to be false. By the way, AFRICOM's campaign also uses the phrase containment, that we're going to contain instability inside of Libya. The global ISIS strategy is really a strategy for taking ISIS out of Iraq and Syria and CERT Libya, and not about all these other places. The red X's are places where ISIS has declared reliance and actually has operational presence. The yellow places are places that we think that ISIS is about to declare reliance. It does go all the way to Southeast Asia. If we don't take the threat from a full estimate, then we're going to keep engaging in strategies that put us in a position to have to say our military operations are doing something but they're not achieving the goal. I'm worried about that outcome. I'm worried not just because it's not going to succeed against ISIS, but because it produces fabulous conditions for Al-Qaeda, produces fabulous conditions for Russia. And it generates opportunities I think we haven't imagined yet for Iran. So ISIS is a lever. You know, people ask me, if you're going to rack and stack threats, Russia, Iran, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, would you put ISIS on top? Genuinely, I think my answer would be no. But I also don't want to rack and stack them. I see them as systemically integrated. I don't know why we have this desire to rack and stack. Okay. Here's the other fun thing. Every other actor is engaged in leverage. ISIS is. You know, they used to do this thing on the interior that when it was facing a counterattack, by the interior I mean Iraq and Syria, when it was facing a counterattack, it would go long and attack in two other places so that the force that was attacking it would have to deal with defense also. It was also a way of making sure that they would have a net gain. So, for example, if ISIS was facing an attack in Tikrit, it would attack in two other places, Beijing and Ramadi, so that if it lost Tikrit, it might gain one of those two. It usually did. The equation was usually a net gain for ISIS whenever it engaged in this kind of attack. Uh, a kind of defense I used to call zone defense. Uh, but it was also a way of splitting the attention of the forces that were trying to attack it. ISIS is, in terms of this broader map, engaged in a scaled version of zone defense. And people ask, well, are they just going outside of Iraq and Syria because they know that they can't remain in control of those cities inside of Iraq and Syria? Is Libya going to become the new Iraq for ISIS? Close, but not quite. <laughs> my answer to that question uh, for two reasons. One, Iraq actually is the center of ISIS's world. 
Uh, this is a group that still has a primarily uh, Iraqi culture inside of the organization. It has an outsized global network and absolutely is international. AQI always was, but the military culture of the organization, I think the leadership culture broadly is still Iraqi. That is still central to their worldview. So if ISIS can manage just to hibernate at the end of the day in Iraq again and come back, it's going to keep gunning for that terrain. Sham is also very significant to ISIS's theology. They subscribe to uh, hadith that place an apocalyptic war uh, against the West as occurring in Dabak in northern Syria. So Sham is also always going to be central to their worldview. It's not going to shift, but ISIS is fighting a generational war. It says as much. If it can shift in order to reserve its forces, its military sustainment, uh, its survival, it will do so in order to come back. So this is really a very important point. Uh, most of our adversaries are fighting a generational war. We have to make sure that we are not fighting a short one. Or else we're going to do a lot in the immediate term that is uh, constructive, inexpensive, and transitory. It can be erased even by threats as weak as ISIS. Now here's the flip side of that whole reminder that ISIS is the old AQI. I still remember these guys as being weak, even though ISIS is stronger than AQI was. It is not cool that they are the strong man in some parts of Iraq and Syria and elsewhere in the world. That is not just a metric of the rise of that organization, it's a metric of the decline of everybody they have to compete with. So there are broadly arguments that sometimes circulate in academia uh, about disorder. Um, I don't think they're wrong, but I really think this idea of how ISIS is leveraging disorder, how it is leveraging the competition among strong enemies, how it is trying to weaken strong forces is actually quite good warfare and not original. Lots of revolutionary forces have done that over time, uh, but I think we may find ourselves taking the wrong lessons from the observation that ISIS is a weak force in the sense that we assume that they can't make progress in other places besides Iraq and Syria, or assuming that they're a strong force and thinking that they are comparable to Russia, let's say. If I had to rack and stack, I think I would put Russia as the number one threat to the United States uh, because we are talking about a full spectrum of warfare that does exceed ISIS's. But uh, the reason why Russia is powerful right now is because they're doing what ISIS is doing. They're gauge, engaging as a hybrid force rather than a purely military force. The reason why for Russia, plausible deniability, because they can maneuver more easily uh, if they are using covert action, if they are using proxies, uh, if they are maneuvering in ways that paralyze our action. Iran, Russia, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS are thinking in terms of how to paralyze U.S. action. Okay, but I don't think we're thinking about it in terms about how to paralyze theirs. Al-Qaeda, for example. I keep skipping Al-Qaeda. I think it's because I'm worried about this one. Okay. Al-Qaeda has been eerily quiet. I think because they figured out that we will go after Al-Qaeda in this moment if they conduct a long-range terrorist attack. But that kind of an attack is actually only part of Al-Qaeda's program. Al-Qaeda, like ISIS, is going for a caliphate ultimately. 
their primary emphasis within the same manhaj, within the same strategy that ISIS is using, is social change. They want to produce a change in people's mentality and appetite for their brand of Sharia. They don't actually even care if they govern it afterwards. They want, basically, what is happening to the Syrian opposition. Syria is a huge success for al-Qaeda, a bigger success for al-Qaeda than even it is for ISIS. Ultimately, if ISIS remains strong, those two forces, in my view, are going to connect their ideologies and their ways at some point. The biggest obstacle to that connection now is a personal one. It's actually personally Baghdadi. So one of the other questions I can ask, what happens to ISIS if uh, the head gets cut off that snake? Well, I think that is one really quick way to get a united, really big al-Qaeda, actually. I see forces within ISIS that don't regenerate their own leadership. If that were to be the happy outcome, I think that they will regenerate their own leadership um, as reuniting with al-Qaeda. So the broader Salafi jihadi movement is gaining a lot of momentum right now, and it's a bit of a checkmate because a loss for ISIS is a gain for al-Qaeda. But the United States has an anti-ISIS strategy. So in this arena in which we feel like we have to rack and stack threats, the primary mission in which we are engaged militarily in the world right now is an anti-ISIS mission. It's theoretically global, but it is centered on Iraq and Syria with a little bit going on in Libya. We are observing Russia and acting upon Russia, but as if it is in a different silo. And this is something else that really does concern me. These threats look at the panoply of conditions that are revolving as systemic, and we look at them as silos, and we're acting on them as silos. And I think that is going to mean that we continue to get outmaneuvered and outpaced by every adversary, ranging from the strongest to the weakest, including ISIS. And I don't think that's acceptable. This is not a theoretical map. I'm going to show you another one. My team just put out a Ramadan forecast. So somewhere in that realm of intelligence and tradecraft, one of the ones, one of the elements of tradecraft that I am most passionate about personally is the function of forecasting. I think a lot of analysts try to predict, and there's a little bit of a, well, there's a lot of risk aversion to predicting at all because you might be wrong. But there's a desire to try to say that ISIS is going to go to this place by this date based on the following evidence, um, which I think is compelling, rather than to forecast the way that we forecast the weather. Let me pause for a minute on this. You'll understand why I'm mapping this way. By the way, this map has six weeks' worth of activity pre-Ramadan for ISIS. So this is mid-April through the beginning of June. Uh, The yellow are foiled attacks, arrests, uh, and warnings issued by official authorities. The red splotches are actual attacks uh, or ground clashes in which ISIS or groups that are affiliated with ISIS were the attackers. Okay, so ISIS is extremely active globally now. Okay, if we were to talk about what ISIS is doing during Ramadan, this would be at a minimum a linear trajectory from what that map illustrates in the last six weeks. So this is not just ISIS making statements about reliance, it is actually ISIS doing things in these places. The threat to Europe is genuine and expanding. Uh, that, that is now a mainstream idea. I'm happy to loop back on that more. Uh, but we are talking about a threat that is actually pushing firepower out, that is pushing leadership out. 
that has a desire to do a number of things, not just to take over leadership within the Muslim world by weakening the states that are competing with it in that score, not just to acquire territory across the full breadth of it and ultimately to unite that territory, but also to start a total war against the non-Muslim world. There was a, a, um, a scholar and a fairly high up Al-Qaeda leader, Saifal Adel, who was a contemporary of the original leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Masabu um, Asakali who laid out a phased campaign plan for how to get from ISI <laughs> to a caliphate. It's basically the campaign plan that ISIS has been following over the course of the last few years. 2016, in this date-by-date cyclical campaign plan, is supposed to be the year where you start the total war. We could assume that this is ISIS just lashing out because it's weak inside of Iraq and Syria. I think we ought to also consider the fact that this is exactly the phase at which ISIS meant to do so. Europe is not that far away from the areas that ISIS controls. Uh, the terrorist network that has been deployed forward in Europe has already demonstrated its capability, and I don't think that that particular network has finished singing. People ask me over the course of current events, like Orlando, uh, is that an equivalent threat in the U.S.? I would also tell you, no, I don't think so yet. I think there is a big difference between a terrorist network that is deployed forward with cohesive operational cells that have been trained in Iraq and Syria, which is how I would characterize the threat in Europe, and the realm of lone wolves that we're trying to parse right now. Uh, the U.S. government describes lone wolves as ranging across three different bins from those conducting directed attacks as individuals, those conducting attacks that are enabled by a formal group like ISIS, and attacks that are inspired by those formal groups. Those are not really new categories. Al-Qaeda has been engaged in the operation of trying to inspire lone wolves for many years. Uh, it really isn't one or the other when it comes to this lone wolf space. You will have people who have been radicalized originally reading Al-Qaeda literature, who are reading ISIS literature now, uh, the space between is not necessarily that significant uh, in all cases. I think it's very much about which one looks like the winning party now. Uh, ISIS has asked for this kind of attack, specifically in Ramadan, has encouraged it broadly. Um, Ramadan isn't over yet. I don't think we've seen all of those attacks necessarily occur. Uh, but there is an element here that I also want to draw upon. as a potential change from last year. When we were talking years ago about inspired lone wolves in the Al-Qaeda context, and Anwar al-Laki's Inspired Magazine specifically, I really did subscribe to the idea that lone wolves who consumed jihadist literature would reach out in some way to a group in order to validate their courses of action and or get resources before acting. I have been considering lately whether or not that dynamic has changed, because some of the dependent dynamics have changed. It used to be that in order to look at jihadist literature, you had to go onto a jihadist forum. Okay, that's not true anymore. <laughs> you, know, you, you can't pick up actually CNN right now without seeing jihadist literature anymore. It's all over Twitter. It's like actually actively hard to avoid it. 
the information environment in which we're living today is saturated with jihadist media, primarily thanks to ISIS. But other groups like Jabal al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, are actually trying to emulate ISIS in this way because ISIS's messaging campaign is so effective. Has that campaign changed the nature of lone wolf terrorism? Actually, I think that's a good question. Let's take our Orlando shooter, for example. Uh, the current running estimate is that he had no, no formal contacts, but that he had been consuming jihadist literature for a while and saying crazy things for a while, and not to be investigated by the FBI a few times for saying crazy things. He decided to do something terrible at a pretty significant scale and to say over the course of doing so that I'm ISIS now. I don't think that fits our bins. <laughs> I'm not sure I would even say that that's inspired by ISIS, but it's a huge win for ISIS. And that dynamic is one that I think is changing. The belief that there will be caliphate is also an opinion that is changing. You have states right now talking about that. I think we should also recognize that our status quo imagining that there will be uh, classical modern states at the end of this is something we ought to treat instead as a formal goal statement. Is that what the United States thinks that the end game should be and work backwards from it? because lots of conditions right now are unraveling at a, a more than regional level on concerning questions like that. Will it be Al-Qaeda or ISIS? Here's the other crazy middle bender. You know what Jabal al-Nusra's recruiting pitch is? We are not those guys. We are not ISIS. We are for you. We're just Al-Qaeda. Okay. Maybe I'm dating <coughs> myself, but Al-Qaeda used to be really scary to me. <laughs> Al-Qaeda is still really scary. Al-Qaeda is still after all the same things it was after before. It's just using this moment strategically. So I think another assumption we're potentially making, even with respect to the status of ISIS's military campaign on the side of Iraq and Syria, is we confuse lack of capacity with strategic patience. I don't think that's a good idea. Let's talk about this at the microscopic level. ISIS did tactically withdraw from Palmyra, and it tactically withdrew from Ramadi. It means it chose not to fight to the death, but to preserve a reserve force. I'm not sure our estimates that ISIS can't engage in maneuver warfare are correct. I think that our campaign plan, in terms of what we have been encouraging proxies to do coherently, particularly in Iraq, has been focused upon not only cities, but also lines of communication, and that's smart. But to assume that ISIS has lost its capacity for maneuver warfare is to assume that that was a drop in the pan when, in fact, I think we're actually talking about Ba'athist leaders from Saddam's era who have been engaged in that element of ISIS's warfare for the long haul. And those guys have managed to survive a few hibernation periods. So what is the goal now is a question I want to reframe. Obviously, we want to protect the homeland. Obviously, we want to reinforce our partnerships and alliances against a number of threats that face them. Obviously, we are engaged in a military campaign right now that is oriented to take cities back from ISIS inside of Iraq and Syria. Theoretically, also to prevent ISIS from taking control of more cities elsewhere in the world. That campaign takes 
a lot of energy at a legal level, at an authority's level, in order to engage in a single action. A lot more energy to making sure that we are precise than ever we had to engage in Iraq and Afghanistan as individual theater campaigns. It takes a lot more to get up to an airstrike now than it ever did. That's probably good, but it also means we're slow. It means we have to figure out the relevance of COCOMs going forward. How do we task organize in a way that addresses global threats? Because ISIS is not the only one. In fact, we have more global threats now in this system than we have local or regional ones. We haven't made those changes yet. Um, people ask me, well, what should we do? You keep telling us things that we're doing now that aren't working. Okay, agreed. I do actually want to <laughs> contribute constructive thoughts. Um, that's the plane in which I am currently thinking. You know, what is our alternative to security forces systems? What is our alternative to COCOM breakdowns that keep falling along seams that everyone else seems to keep exploiting? You know, what is the future of NATO and how Article 5 is engaged? Uh, interestingly, I think it came out in the news yesterday that cyber warfare is now an element of Article 5. That is another space where a lot of constructive energy can be applied to figure out what the future missions of NATO will involve. We've got a summit coming up uh, and a lot of threats that are facing NATO. Uh, I have a really big question mark about what uh, the vision ultimately is for the alliance with Turkey. We were talking about Kurds earlier. Uh, this is front and center a huge concern for Turkey. The outcome of missions that the U.S. is supporting for Kurds in Iraq and Syria. It is a huge concern for Turkey what Russia is doing in Syria. Now, when we're talking about strategic basing, the, Rus the Russia's strategic basis in Syria, man, this really does put how small Syria is in perspective. Um, that little blip out to the Mediterranean that is just south of the Turkish border, I mean, this is, again, less than 60 kilometers, is where Russia has a heck of a lot of firepower. If I were Turkey, I'd be worried about that, too. You know, Russia has a tendency, uh, in fact, um, a style, I would say, of uh, deploying its aircraft to flirt with red lines and borders. Uh, that is deliberate. It is fence testing. Uh, ISIS did that once, too. So again, I think we would benefit from, more than anything else, understanding how other actors are testing and adapting to our conditions that we are setting to try to keep all these threats in a box. Understand how they are regarding multiple threats systemically and do the same thing with ours. It doesn't mean that we need to stoop to the level of some of these actors. I mean, the truth is our warfare is also hard because we have uh, principles. You know, if We would have a lot easier time with our air campaign and our authorities if we air struck the way that Russia does. We would have a lot easier time holding cities if we did it the way that ISIS did. There's a reason why we engage warfare the way that we do. We just need to make sure that our way is not outpaced and outmaneuvered. So to me, this really does still come back on the question of how it is that we orient ourselves in terms of regarding multiple threats. Uh, the real key to me is to regard them as systems. I literally, when I see threats on a map, I picture a weather map. And I'm thinking in terms of jet streams and warm air pockets and warm water pockets and whether or not that's going to cause a low pressure system to become a hurricane. And I'll tell you honestly, we've got like five hurricanes right now. And some of them are going to make landfall. 
and we can see them coming. So let's talk about the actual trajectories of those storms rather than diagnosing them as not hurricanes yet. And I think we'll find ourselves actually getting into more of the effective headspace that some of our adversaries have adopted of thinking about where they want to be 20 years from now and working backwards. I don't know the question to where the United States wants to be globally 20 years from now. I think we're probably thinking about it as as strong as we can be. And I don't think that's good enough. So this really boils down to, to me, I know I'm supposed to be briefing on ISIS, but ISIS, to me, is a lever into thinking genuinely about what our grand strategy is now and what are our goals. If we don't have clear answers to those questions, then we're not going to be able to work backwards from them effectively. We're going to keep engaging in short-term plans. And by the way, to me, there is a very definite difference right now between engaging in mission creep, which is what happens when you try to do as little as possible and hope that it doesn't keep escalating and engaging in an incremental operation that sets new conditions that you're going to reevaluate. We have lots of operations ongoing right now. Depending upon how we frame those operations in terms of a, a campaign for American national security, human security for our partners especially, we can either engage in mission creep by continuously looking in terms of what we want to apply that is as minimal as possible to maintain the status quo to the greatest degree, or we can think in terms of how we're going to use our limited resources strategically. We still have more means than every other actor that is acting in this space. Okay? They are not actually putting more on the table in most respects than we are. Okay, ISIS is engaged in a total war. Russia is not. So we need to use our means strategically, which in my mean, in, in my head means we actually need to evaluate what our global map looks like uh, and consider that Russia is putting pins in places and ISIS is putting pins in places that are actually on the same map for both of them. Um, I still think this is a a chess game that we are very much poised to win, um, but we're losing it right now. And we're losing it regardless of the fact that we've taken 40% of ISIS's cities back from them. 